4, February 22nd, 2010. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 86. One hit, you're naked. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the left coast of America, I am your host, Matthew Rather, here with the panel and a very vocal chat room on our Overthinking It podcast uh, channel on Ustream.tv, where you can see this show streamed live every week at 9.15 Eastern, 6.15 Pacific, though it's uh, usually 15, 20 minutes of BS, and then we get to recording the show, as in tonight. And those shows, if you want to watch the video and see my... um See my computer screen as I surf the internet in support of the show. Or see my face, Uh, which I occasionally broadcast into the thing. Uh, You can do that. There's also fun behind-the-scenes stuff there as well. It's It's a great thing, and it's something that we are excited to do. Right, panel? Right. So, uh, panel, this is our um, this is our Oscar preview show. Our Oscar picks, Oscar overthinking, Oscar, 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 Oscar. So let's do the um, let's do the standard question that we've been doing around the award shows. If you could invent an Oscar, uh, what would it be for? What would it be for? What Oscar category would you invent given the opportunity? Since we don't have any interlopers on the podcast tonight, the first in alphabetical order, as he is when all is right with the world and God is in his heaven, is Mr. Peter Fenzel. God is in his heaven. Pete is in his basement. All is right with the world. I I don't have any root beer, but I've actually recently taken out the cans and recycling. So, you know, I'm I'm acting like an adult and all that. Uh, Quick shout out to all my peeps at the North Carolina Comedy Arts Festival this week, which was awesome. Had a great time down in Carborough and Chapel Hill and hope everybody had a good time, too. Um, So the question is, what Oscar category would I make up? Well, as you full well know, the movie business can be tricky business. And oftentimes the credit doesn't really go to the people and the things that make that business tick, (laughs) which is why I would create an Oscar category for the one thing more than the directors and the actors and the producers that actually keeps the infrastructure of the movie industry and the movies that you go see ticking and moving like the clockwork it does week to week, month to month. That's right. Best concession offering. (laughs) (laughs) So because it would you know be, what? It would be for exhibitors. It wouldn't be for people who make movies. No, it would be for candy. It would be for specific kinds of candy. Uh, <laughs> oh, so, okay. Quick, uh, quick well, lightning I mean, round. <laughs> quick lightning round opening question. Uh, best concession. Fenzel. Raisinets. McNeil. Junior Mints. Lee. Peanut M&Ms, clearly. And me, Red Vines. Thanks, Pete. Keep going. What? All right. Mission accomplished anyway actually as everybody as as most people know the avatar isn't really keeping the movie theater in business the popcorn you buy when you're watching avatar is what's keeping avatar in business and it's about time that we gave the credit where the credit was due to the hard-working corn farmers of america and hard-working chemical engineers of america <laughs> who bring you that plethora of delicious goodness uh as well as all the other stuff that you buy for who way break too much. down the kernel of number two corn into so <laughs> many of its constituent chemicals and then reassemble those chemicals <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In ever so, so Pete is the Oscar for like best markup. 
<laughs> Best markup would be a good Oscar. This year it would go to 3D movies, uh, almost certainly. <laughs> you know, I um I went to see a movie last night, and I had my standard uh, box of red vines with the movie. And I'm I'm getting to an age now where I'm trying like it's it's an effort to keep the weight off a lot of the time. And uh, I walked out of that movie feeling a little woozy from the box of red vines I had eaten, and and thought that maybe it is not a good idea to down half a pound of corn syrup and food coloring, uh, you know, over the course of an hour and a half. The problem, Matt, is that you're not getting the locally grown corn syrup and food coloring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only, if only I had macrobiotic red vines. <laughs> if, you can, if you can't look at the candy and visualize the uh, gas compression chamber that rendered the fat substitute that's used in making it, then, like, I don't really think it's safe to eat. It's, it's, uh, it's really a matter of I think the red vines are actually advertised as a low-fat licorice candy. Yeah, it's because they're sugar, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not even sugar. They're pure corn syrup. Yeah. Right, right, right. They're like right, corn right. syrup made manifest, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're the, av- and- they're the avatar. That's where the avatar is, right there. The avatar of corn that uh, that comes in and exerts its influence on all of us. They're also vastly superior to Twizzlers. Red vines. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. No, there's no question about that in my mind. No. That yeah. the um, the, uh, the the of the licorice, the national licorice brands, Red Vines is by far the superior one. Twi- Twizzlers are you- like plastic to me. All the time, and you yeah. totally know that that Reese's Pieces would be the best dressed on the red carpet. You have that sexy outfit right over that nice plastic bag, of peanut sort of things, a plunging neckline, but classy, but but racy, sort of I'm, like what? I'm sorry, I was getting carried away there. What was that? No, 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 it was good. It was good. I'm just going to share a quick story from my weekend. I was in Hershey, Pennsylvania, for a conference at a <laughs> bar doing networking, and this drunken, just supremely drunken man grabs me and the woman that I'm having a conversation with, drags us over to meet his wife, all the while telling us that his dad was Reese of Reese's Pieces. <laughs> we have no way of verifying this, but we did subsequently find out that this man is America's number one church interior designer. Wow. So if you need, wait, if you need a place to go, folks, Hershey really is it. I have a really difficult question for you, Josh. Is that man gay? Or not? <laughs> no, no, no. He was totally into his wife and oh. every other woman in the room. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I figure that might create some sort of natural tension if you have like a you know an elite interior decorator, but also like a hardworking person dedicated to like the what's going on inside of America's places of worship. But I suppose I was wrong. Um, me- white men can, in fact, do anything they want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, Mark Lee is next in the alphabet. Sorry, I went a little out of order with the lightning round before. Mark Lee, new Oscar category. All right. Um, My new Oscar category would have something to do with the audience. Um, Really, you know, that that other part of the movie-making thing that makes movies possible, right? Besides the folks who actually make the movies, the ones who consume them and pay money to see them. Um, So we'll go one of two ways. One being, like, best fans of a movie, um, most enthusiastic or, uh, you know, most supportive of the, the whatever film that they want to see. Like we should probably go to, like, I don't know, Too Fast, Too Furious. Um, <laughs> sorry, fast, fast and, what was the mo- what most recent Fast and Furious Faster installment? Fast and Furious, or? It was called Tetra Fast Quadruplo Furioso. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that. So th- there, could be, there could be that audience award. But the other way to look at this as well would be, like the best filmmaker who uh, most skillfully manipulates 
or tricks his audience. And which would probably go to either James Cameron for Avatar or Quentin Tarantino for Inglorious Bastards for very different reasons, though. In what, um, in what sense? They were, they were manipulative of their audiences in very different ways. I think James Cameron was uh, wanted to manipulate his audience and um, was not transparent about it, whereas Quentin Tarantino very much was. You know, you're, I don't want to get myself too far down this rat hole because explain <laughs> far more, the more uh, we require far more than I'm actually able to deliver at this point. But uh, are you guys with me on this? On this, like, uh, this, like involving the audience side in the Oscars here? Mm-hmm. I mean, so you would give it to the best fan base. Um, now, how would you? The question is: a lot of what happens in the fan bases for movies is tricks that is are created by the PR arms of studios right so how would you be able to distinguish between like sock puppets and people who come out from the industry pretending to be grassroots organizers but are in fact like not and are in fact like you know, personal employees of like wait, the wait, Pete, industrial Pete, complex? what you're, you're telling me that all the enthusiasm for movies doesn't come from the pure noble hearts of, <laughs> of, 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 of honest moviegoers? You're saying that some of this is manufactured by the people who bring us entertainment? My face is destroyed. I'm saying that when Snakes on a Plane was coming out, the movie business actually had a group of people who were excited to see a movie before it came out, and they had no idea what to do with them. <laughs> they were like, what? Like, what? Like, these people right, exist prior right. to us having to create them? No, I'm just playing devil's advocate because I like to fill awkward silences, Mark. I, I'm, I don't know. I gotta, I'm going to have to go take a break and rethink my entire worldview for a little bit, so we should move on with the questions, Matt. Let's you know, I know a Josh. good interior designer. I know a good interior designer for a place you can go to do that. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's, go to, let's go to Josh McNeil in uh, Philly. What's going on? I'm torn on the Oscar category thing. Uh, I was originally going to do something along the lines of viral marketing campaigns because I think they may actually be more important than the films themselves at this point. Like, I first saw the trailer for Iron Man 2 something like two and a half years ago at this point. Those folks have got me so excited for this movie that, like, even though I know it's going to be terrible, I'm still going to go see it and be excited about it up until the moment I realize it's terrible when I'm in it, which is pretty impressive. Every chance that movie is going to be thoroughly passable to like moderately good, like it's entirely. Although I guess you probably have different standards than I do. But, no, 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 no. I mean, I like the first one a lot, but just yeah. you know, now you know what what sequel have you liked more than what's the, or oh, what sequel have I liked more than the original? Well, I mean, there's the ones that are kind of not real answers, which are like uh, Two Towers, right? Which is like, well, I mean, Lord of the Rings is so good, it doesn't really matter. Um, I could also say that I liked. Um, uh, the Clone Wars more than I like the Phantom Menace, but that's also a trick answer uh, because that's sort of like you're you're coming from less less. It's like hatred. Rocky Five is better than Rocky Four. Exactly, exactly. Rock like there's a great example. Well, the, I, um, stock, I like the stock examples are what Godfather Two, yeah. though it's hard. Emp- to, I mean, Empire Strikes Empire. Back. Yeah, but I mean those Strikes are like back, the great. Really those are amongst the great films of all time. Like they are uh, exceptions. Prisoner, to the rule. Prisoner of Azkaban is better than uh, um, Sorcerer's Stone. Oh, hey, is uh, is Dark Knight better than Batman Begins? Oh, by far. This yeah. is from Alexander in the chat room. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, fair, fair point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, don't forget, Term- don't forget Terminator Two, guys. Don't forget Terminator Two. Just of course, say that. Put that up there. Well, Terminator Two though was a different kind of movie, I think. Right then. Uh... You know, right? Like, oh, yeah, in, in a big way, in many different ways. So it's almost, it's almost not. Uh, 
uh, it's almost not fair to compare them. I mean, yeah. well, the, 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 is this where I get to say that you're true Scotsmaning here? Yes, that's in fact you are true Scotsman. Terminator Two isn't really a sequel, right? Right there, uh, it's not a real sequel. <laughs> no true sequel would. Uh... All right, yeah. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go ahead with mine. I I had thought. Pete, that um, when you said, I'm going to give an award to the people who, uh, who really make the movie experience possible, I thought you were, you were referring to the Teamsters. <laughs> and so I, I, I was considering making my pick uh, the uh, best driving by the Teamster crew of a movie, and it would go to the movie that seems to have the most stuff. In anti- <laughs> right stuff that like to material, be, actual physical stuff. That yeah, needs to be like stuff that you trucks. need trucks and whatnot to move <laughs> yeah. around, or yeah. you know, a lot of a, a, a cast of a lot of actors, all of whom need drivers, mm. you know, to get themselves uh, to and from the set. Uh, right. Or yeah, but I, I decided uh, I decided not to go. Uh, I decided not to go with that one. I I also considered giving an Oscar for least accurate trailer. <laughs> the uh, the trailer that in the name of marketing the movie uh in a way that other successful movies have been marketed really does a great injustice to the film itself and its uniqueness but uh I'm not going with that either I'm going to go with worst parenting uh <laughs> in a movie or like no in a movie not in like, a movie I'm... worst parenting in life that the worst yeah, parenting in america to your parents is this just like you getting back at your parents like being like <laughs> no every it's year not my you see i didn't i didn't have to the the theory behind this is that uh you know bad parenting makes it necessary for children to escape into a cinematic dream world to uh, <laughs> to escape from the the dystopian present that they uh, that they have, sort of a la Pan's Labyrinth, you know, right? Where the um, where the horror. I like how of, you're the horrors. Of I like how Spanish. you're gesturing with your hand as you're talking. <laughs> you're gesturing with your hand on the video as you're talking. The fun. horror. Anyway, keep going. You see, this is this is just this is but one of the many pleasures of watching the watching the video. We have to figure out how to get you guys. Um, uh, how to get you guys onto the live video stream as well. Uh, you know, sure. Much as the girl in Pan's Labyrinth in order to escape the horrors of Spanish fascism has to uh, invent this uh, mythical world for herself. Uh, so worst parenting in America that makes, uh, that makes uh, a child an avid movie watcher and that makes a child truly an artist. Uh, that is what my, uh, that is what my Oscar will be for. So that is your panel. Uh, we are here in the chat room and we are launching into the Oscars. Let's do some picks or, I mean, does anyone have anything to say about the field this year? Let's, uh, let's have a look. Aside from the shameful publicity stunt that uh, opening up the field of best picture nominees at 10. Mm. Well, Uh, why don't you talk about that? (laughs) Okay. In, In what sense is it a shameful publicity stunt? That they're allowing a bunch of more commercial films that they know aren't going to win to be nominated just to drum up more interest. And they're going to give it to the artsy thing no one saw, like they typically do. <laughs> Sorry, that's the, I'm, being, I'm being extreme here. That's obviously so more... You, so you're saying that you think The Hurt Locker is going to win and not Avatar, the biggest movie in the whole crazy universe for, full of cat boobs <laughs> and whatnot. 
Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if Hurt Locker, now keep this in mind, if Hurt Locker were to win, it would be the lowest grossing Oscar winner of Best Picture ever. Uh, and seen by like the fewest people, or at least the fewest like dollars. Really? Well, that would fit um, so, the yeah. trend that Belinky uh, discovered last year, right, with his quantitative yeah. analysis. Yeah. We should post a link to that. Yeah. The, um, now, okay, though, the, like, okay, so the, the Best Picture nominees, Avatar, I mean, the, it's the five, the, like, the top five are the ones that also have directing nominees. So those mm. are, you know, Avatar, Hurt Locker, Inglorious Bastards, Precious, I think, and Up in the Air, right? Right. And yeah. the other ones. But, you know, Mark, it's the, the rest of the movies are not. Um, the rest of the movies on here aren't uh, big commercial movies, right? Up, I guess Up is the most commercial of them. You know, yeah. Up, A Serious Man, uh, Precious. Nine ended up being pretty big, didn't it? Yeah, but it, I mean, it came being... out of a random short film done by a random South African guy, right? Like, yeah, but I mean, but ultimately he made you know buku's of money off of it. Mm. I think I can well, see only, how many... I mean, because, it, because the investment was so low, right? Like, because there wasn't a whole lot of money uh, put into that movie to begin with. But District 9, like, District 9 is the argument for um, for making it a field of 10, I think, right? Because, uh, you know, District 9 wouldn't have been nominated otherwise. Um, yeah. And it's nice to get attention drawn to a, to a film like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess it's not not just doesn't just end with the, the list of nominees and then the Academy that, you know, all knowing conspiratorial entity, which is going to pick the artsy movie that no one's ever seen. Um, I was reading this a little bit somewhere. Matt, Matt, rather, you could probably speak better to this, that the the widening of the field, um, I think, has the effect that it will it is increasing the chance that a um, a, a, a dark horse is going to win something about the statistics of how the voting of this works. Well, if you split Have you heard the this? vote. Yeah, the the final the final Oscars are voted on by members of the Academy um altogether, right? So that whereas the nominations are determined by the individual departments. So the the makeup artists determine best makeup. Is there an Oscar for makeup? The sound designers determine best sound design, the actors determine best actors, the they determine the nominees. Um the Academy at large votes on votes on all the well, awards so who determines uh, well, the nominees for best picture then because it doesn't have a uh i think the either the producer's department or else the whole or else the whole academy i mean i would say that that, that that's actually an interesting statistical point um i would think that de- they would largely depend upon the differential in the sort of underlying prevailing opinions because you have to keep in mind how many people would make their vote more or less at random or like the variance from sort of general opinion that would show up in the actual voting process. So if there were a clear frontrunner, then having more nominees would benefit the clear frontrunner because a lot of the statistical noise would get spread out over the other nominees and you'd be able to see that phenomenon. But if it were closer, then you can see, well, you know, if it were evenly split among five and then all of a sudden it's evenly split among ten – then the people who aren't really sure can go in any number of different directions, and it's less predictable. You, you have people making dichotomous decisions like, oh, did I like The Blind Side more than I like District 9? Like, that's kind of hard for me to say. Like, I don't really know. Whereas if The Blind Side isn't there, you're like, okay, that's pretty clear, and you take away one of their options. Um, I mean, I'm not the most political scientist here, but it seems to me that it could have either effect, depending upon the underlying prevailing opinions of the people in the electorate. Um, as it were. <laughs> 
I, I feel like I just said one of those things that makes everybody quiet. <laughs> it's like, oh man, I killed the podcast. Sorry, I was I was thinking I was thinking I should look this up. I think they're using instant runoff voting for the uh, for the best picture. Oh, so they're they're requiring it to have some sort of not just plurality, but some sort of of weighting, a minimum weighting of the votership. Right. Explain instant runoff. Uh, instant runoff voting is where you you. Um, rank your top certain number of choices right isn't it uh in political science and so it's the system that would make third parties viable in america right Mm -hmm. so you you know you could vote for the reform party candidate or the green party candidate you know and then cast your vote for the major party candidate kind of as as your second choice and when Mm -hmm. your number one didn't win your uh your number two vote would be counted It, it I don't know. I'm not really a politician. Josh, do yeah. you know the details of this system? Yes. Frankly, no system will make a third party viable. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually how we do uh, municipal elections in Cambridge. Huh. Um, and, and But, of course, the other thing is that in order to keep the city governable, at the same time that they instituted instant runoff pro- proportional voting and whatnot, they also um, – took the administrative duties of the executive uh, portion of the municipal government and passed it to a professional manager away from the mayor's office. Uh. So uh, it's like it's like my, my suburban town in, in New Jersey used to run this way too, mayor, council, manager. You elect the council, council elects a mayor, and then they all employ a manager to actually run the city. Right. Which, you know, which both insulates the individual councilman from the inevitable fraud that happens in running the city because they can just fire the manager. Uh, and also it uh, allows for some sort of basic competence in something like employing somebody to build a pipe. You know, it's like uh, my, what I really believe in is I really believe in angels or like I really believe in like the power of magic to save all of our lives. Well, there are a lot of weird things that people are running for in Cambridge. And uh, at least you have somebody running things that knows like how to put up a power line or at least who to call to make that happen. Mm. So that's kind of important. Knowledge okay, so here's, uh, here's how it works. <laughs> okay. Uh, here's, here's how the system works, right? Um, if no one emerges the majority winner after the first, uh, after the first choice uh, on everybody's ballot is tallied, then the person with the least number of first choice ballots is eliminated, and that person's votes are redistributed to whoever is the second choice on those ballots. Yes, and then uh, and then the process continues uh, through you know as many rounds as it needs to happen like that until someone has a majority. Um, someone has a majority. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. So, so it's right. Let me, let me ask a question here. So it's interesting that we uh, really like jumped like, pretty much straight into like the minutia of the uh, voting system <laughs> and the statistics and that sort of thing. But let's zoom back out for a second, um, as we are want to often want to do. And With the red let's, carpet. Yeah. <laughs> let's think about like what does it mean? You know, especially this year, like the question of what the criteria for determining best picture becomes a much trickier question. And this goes back to something we talked about with Avatar and how there's so many different aspects of, um, of a motion picture which determines success, um, which said that Avatar succeeded in a lot of these ways and failed on a lot of them and somehow all came together into a great picture. Um, so considering that and how the, the, the wide variety of movies we have here, it's very difficult to, uh, to compare all them together. It's really kind of an apples and oranges thing. I, mean, I guess it always is every year, but especially more so this year. So, like, what's the question? Is what does best what does best picture mean this year or any year? Um, 
Well, I, th- I mean, I think that the Best Picture is the only award, and the, the, what I keep coming back to, it's the only award that the entire Academy votes on together. And it's going to be a coalition vote. It's not going to be along a single continuum. And this is something that seems problematic until you realize that it's part of every election or every multiple choice question that you're ever asked. That, and it's like what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. We might have even talked about it while we were setting up the Ustream. The people who control the agenda really control the choices. Um, and that's just a fact of electoral uh, mathematics, right? If you can set up what people have a choice between, then you can get them to say whatever you want. I mean, this goes from all the way the absurd side of like the Napoleon Saddam Hussein side, where it's like, hey, vote for me or vote for nothing, or you know, <laughs> don't get counted, or I kill you. Then like you can get ninety nine percent turnout, ninety nine percent approval, or the, the or the Kang like, versus Kodos election. Right. Yeah. You'll recall well, yeah. where someone said, yeah, yeah, "We'll yeah. vote for a third-party candidate," and he said, "Go ahead, throw your vote away." <laughs> well, I mean, more and more relevantly, just think about how people do poll differently. If you ask them, like, "Oh, um, do you support changing the way the power is generated to help the environment versus do you want to pay more for electricity?" Right, which might represent the same choice. But the way that you frame the choice and, and the way that it's set up and what it is juxtaposed against is going to dictate a lot of how people decide things. Because can, these elections don't happen on individual continua. They happen in like a multidimensional field where the sort of perspective of, of a person can shift in any number of different directions. Um, which is, I think, why democracy – I mean this is my own opinion. This is going way off, off the, uh, the reservation here where the most useful – purpose of democracy or the most useful check that democracy puts on political power and the abuse of it is it allows some sort of mechanism for somebody who is so entirely terrible that we can all come to the consensus that we should get rid of them. It provides us a way of doing that without taking up weapons. Um, but its ability to make like subtle choices is, is much diminished and is not as good. Um, so, I mean, I guess... Are you saying that California weapons would be better for that? Yeah. Well, weapons would be better for that? I mean, only if they were very precise weapons. <laughs> only if we were like, fighting with scalpels <laughs> no. or something. Yeah. Well, Josh brings up a good point. I mean, you, you about the California electoral process. It's very similar to the Oscars. Everybody has their own horse that they're backing, and nobody is considering the sort of total game of like what is good for the state, what sacrifices do I need to make for myself, you know, in order for everybody else to do better. These are not. This is not the way the human mind operates. You know, the Oscars are ungovernable. So, as a uh, we have yeah, to sort of a, take the best a, picture. That- uh, a recently repatriated citizen of the state of California and also a student at its uh, its fine university, right, UCLA, one of its marquee universities, actually, in the state university system where they keep raising our prices. Let me tell you, yeah, that the uh, the um, ballot system, the what proposition system in California is a terrible idea. Hey, everyone, you want to pay less taxes? Yes. Yeah. Yes, Josh, I do. Oh well, okay, great. We're gonna do that. But, but wait, you know, wait, wait, wait. No, it's, you like, there's another you side. Can't there's, pay for them anymore. there's another side, right? Like, hey, do you want to vote for more services from your government? Yes, we want to vote for more services. Hey, do you want to vote often on the same ballot for paying less taxes? Yeah, we like, hey, pay less like, taxes. do you like the idea of Sandra Bullock being a plucky mom of an NFL star? Like, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, Christopher, so, what? Should we, should we call it? Best picture? Do we have our predictions, or are we we not ready to? No, let's not. Let's, let's service, save yeah. that. Let's save that for the end. Let's. We're gonna start okay, with okay, uh, okay. actress in a supporting role. Uh, Penelope okay. Cruz in nine. Uh, Vera Farmiga in Up in the Air. Maggie Gyllenhaal in Crazy Heart. Anna Kendrick in Up in the Air. Ooh, Up in the Air, Up in the Air action. And uh, <laughs> Monique. <laughs> 
uh, th- those girls are in the Mile High Club. Zing! And uh, Monique <laughs> as the mother in Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire. Mm. Um, I think there's uh, absolutely no doubt that Monique wins this. Yeah. Yeah, she's been like, the favorite. She's been getting all the ones leading up to it. Yeah, well, I mean, Penelope Cruz, I feel like she's won a bunch of stuff in the past, right? She's, like, been awarded before. Maggie Gyllenhaal certainly been awarded before and sort of makes a lot of money, so people probably are somewhat jealous of her. The other two no one's ever heard of. And, yeah, Monique has been the talk of the town for quite a while. Well, yeah, I don't know. Anna Kendrick and Vera Farmiga. I mean, that movie Up in the Air was was really a sort of darling in Hollywood. But, yeah, no, Monique is going to – I think it's going to be Monique. I think no one's yeah. surprised there. Yeah. Um, uh, I, w- I would like to put in a quick word for Vera Farmiga. I don't think she's going to win, but she really puts in a really, really nice performance. Uh, and, and if you want to look at a good – acting performance from somebody this year that probably doesn't have the sort of impact on the popular imagination that is going to requ- be required to break through in this field. Um, check that out. I and mean, especially in maybe five years, look back at that because it's a really cool performance. And she's much, much better than Anna Kendrick. Like, it's not even close in terms of acting. Well, Anna Kendrick plays some sort of a, a, a more of a, a stereotype or I don't know if quite the word I'm looking for. She's, a, she's a, more of a cartoon character. And Vera Farmiga has a very nuanced thing going on. I mean, I don't think that she has to play a cartoon character, and I don't think that Vera Farmiga doesn't was necessarily prevented by the script from playing a cartoon character. I think that she just did a better job of creating her character in general. But that's just me. We should move on to what best supporting. Do you want to go to? I, w- I want to talk about this oh. because the um, you know very often we get we get uh, get sort of tough on actors who are young, and and not just because I'm I'm in the drama school, but. Um, also, you're not that young anymore, Matt. <laughs> yeah, you can see the receding hairline on the webcam. Uh, <laughs> the, um, the acting is a craft, right? Like it's it's like carpentry. Like you you wouldn't expect the youngest carpenter to be able to frame the house as efficiently as the oldest carpenter. And there's something about you know being a young actor where you can be gifted but you you just haven't you just haven't got the chops and i i you know i think that's okay and i sh- I, I don't think we should necessarily uh fault people for lack of skill when they're they're sort of not done developing you know i mean i don't think that i mean it's also important i mean she did get nominated for an oscar so well, she's doing pretty good yeah this oh, is another example and of there are, the of, there are a couple of really <laughs> good good scenes in that movie the you know the one where she tells George Clooney off is the um uh is the one that's getting a lot of attention but the one where she um uh da, 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 the one the one where she uh kind of sits across from George Clooney and Vera Farmiga and uh kind of talks to them about how awful it must be to be old and compromise all your values that that i think is is you know the better scene in my mind anyway. that might be my favorite at- scene in terms of acting all year i really like that scene that yeah. scene is like really well put together yeah good good reaction yeah, it was a great it was a great performance i don't know when i called it a cartoon character really, i didn't mean to quite diminish it i mean it's just, compared to vera farmiga's character Mm. Yeah, she's in, a plot. I feel like most supporting actor, most supporting roles that you see are cartoon characters. Yeah, oh, right. Well, speaking I mean, of, like, that's sort of the that's the point. They are the the strong sort of personality or the strong foil off of which the nuanced main character plays. 
Right. Is that the, is that the, is that the, the, the segue for best supporting actor? Yeah, Mark's trying to, just, Mark's trying to move us along. One. Okay, buddy. Yeah. Actor in a supporting role, Matt Damon. <laughs> no, it's not that I wanted to lead the conversation. Woody Harrelson in The Messenger, uh, a movie I didn't see, and if I didn't see it, nobody saw it. Uh, That's the one with uh, with uh, Mila Mila Blagojevich doing Joan of Arc, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> is that the one where we fight zombies? Yeah. That was a Woody Harrelson movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It. It's the one where he and Mila Blagojevich. It's Resident Evil Four. That's what it is. That ties it together. Anyway, um, Christopher Plummer in The Last Station, another movie I didn't see. Stanley Tucci in The Lovely Bones, and Christoph Waltz. Uh, in Inglorious Bastards. Well, I mean, my money's on Walt because that's who's been uh, that's who's been been getting it. In the and it was just it was frankly one of the best performances that you've ever he was seen. Pretty freaking incredible, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the first twenty minutes of that movie, you're riveted. I'm kind of I'm surprised they got him in a supporting role. He's mm. really the star of the movie. Yeah, even though he only had like six scenes. Yeah, he stole the like movie. I mean, twenty-five minutes each. Yeah, <laughs> I think you decide where to submit your performance, you know. And it seemed like I think in a uh, in an actor field that includes George Clooney, it was clearly going to include George Clooney. It was probably going to include Morgan Freeman. I think it. I think it was a. I think it was a wise political move to submit this performance in this category rather than in the uh, leading role category. Yeah. I also think that the supporting actor category is a frequent way of uh, rewarding movies that kind of play to an audience that has an aesthetic sensibility that's a little bit more um, or sort of less moderated than the consensus, like sort of edgier performances. And I don't mean from an artistic standpoint because that's actually kind of vanilla and bland. I mean like – you know, if, if, you know, Tommy Lee Jones, for I always thought of as sort of a perennial best supporting actor nod. Like, wasn't he nominated for best supporting actor for The Fugitive? I feel like that for me, like, characterizes what the best supporting actor Oscar means. It's like, it's a really cool performance, but you don't really want to, like, when that person goes on inside the actor's studio to talk about it, you kind of laugh about it because it sort of doesn't fit. I right? want a like, hard <laughs> target search of every outhouse, backhouse, yeah. doghouse, whorehouse, henhouse. And yeah, like if Christoph Waltz goes on there and like James Lipton is like, "Hey, you were in this great German production of this independent film. It was wonderful. Oh, and hey, you were you were that Nazi guy." Everyone's like, "Yeah!" <laughs> like that's not really the response you want to hear from your best actor winner, uh, even though it was a really good performance from an acting standpoint. I mean, Christopher from NYC in our chat room is asking, "Are we awarding the actor or the performance?" So for supporting actor, I think if you were the actor, you have to give it to Christopher Plummer just because he's had such an illustrious career and right. this might be his only shot left. Exactly. But if you were the performance, it's got to be Christoph. Well, yeah, Um, and it's also, I mean, it depends. You know, there's uh, one of the sort of narratives. There's a great New York Magazine article about Oscar campaigns uh, that came out sometime in the last couple weeks. You can probably Google for it. And, um, you know, Oscar campaigns are based on sort of hooking into a narrative. And the the master one is it's time, right? It's, It's time for this person to win. It's time for Martin Scorsese to win. You know, it's time for Jeff Bridges to win. Uh, so, um, so it yeah. is your destiny. You have, but I have a choice. No, you have to do what I say you have to do. Sorry. I was just using my favorite action movie cliches to inform that mm. dialogue. Uh, so I, you end up awarding the actor or awarding the career a lot of times, or I think, I think you end up where, you know, the, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has like 5,800 members. It's not that many. 
You know, mm. y- y- we've all been to rock concerts, uh, which far exceeded that, you know, that number, right? In in um, uh, in attendance. Yeah, so, and we all voted for living on a prayer, <laughs> <laughs> or free or Freebird. <laughs> Uh, if you're going for voting for the actor Christopher Plummer, you're probably right just because of his age. But I don't know. I, my heart, my heart belongs to Stanley Tucci. That guy's fantastic. <laughs> in- yeah, that guy's pretty cool, right? I'm actually thinking of him in Julia and Julia, or Julia and Julia, whatever that is. Um, it's like a really mild performance. It doesn't really stand out, but it's it's incredibly well done. Yeah, he's he's fantastic in it. Yeah, isn't it funny how how uh, Julia Child and her husband have this like hot sex life? Yep. Which, you know, what, what more do you expect? I, well, I guess so. Women like to eat. <laughs> I mean, he's married to a, a spy who cooks marvelously. I feel like that's somebody that you would want to have sex with. <laughs> <laughs> you raise an excellent point. <laughs> Actress in a leading role, Sandra Bullock, a blonde Sandra Bullock in The Blind Side, Helen Mirren in The Last Station, a film nobody saw, Carrie Mulligan in An Education, uh, Gaburi Sidibi, oh, I should have prepared this, uh, in Precious, or Meryl Streep in Julie and Julia. I mean, I'm a Yankee fan, so I have to vote for Meryl Streep, right? Is that how it works? <laughs> like, she, she's the New York Yankees of the Oscars, where it's like, oh, she's did it again. Well, um, of Oscar nominations, I mean, I think she has the um, uh, she, she has, has the record, right? Yeah. Yep, definitely, definitely. She has more Oscar nominations than is like the average age of our Facebook fans, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> so. Has she won? Yes, twice. Okay. Um, or is it or three times? I know she went for Sophie's Choice uh, back in the Dizay, and she won a Best Supporting Actress one too. She might have won three times. Um, and you know, this is the kind of thing where it's like, hey, you know what you do on overthinking it? You guys. Uh, you guys look on Wikipedia and yeah. IMDb and talk about it while you're doing it. <laughs> and talk about it while you're uh, while you're doing your thing. But the yeah. um, so in the yeah, run up, uh, the oh, what was the supporting one for? Kramer, not Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, it was Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, she yeah, won for so. Kramer versus Kramer. Okay, I think so. Yeah, I mean, looking at the nominees, uh, yeah, she did. Okay, there back you go. in 1979, which was before I was born. Yeah, it was me crazy. too. It was a great year. You guys so in the run-up, Sandra Bullock's <laughs> been getting all the um, uh, has been getting all the attention, right? She won the SAG Award. I think she won the Golden Globe. So it's, I mean, the the media has seized on the narrative of um, of like Sandra versus Merrill, the artistic heavyweight versus the commercial success who doesn't get no respect. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's sort of like the the Sandra Bullock uh, like renaissance, right? Is the is that she's like she was the sort of crappy commercial films and now she only does these really great like surprisingly deep movies. That, I don't that, know. She that's did Twenty Eight Days a while ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she had that Steve movie that she also produced that she's nominated for a Razzie for worst actress. <laughs> for, right? I um. Now, my understanding of the plot of this film is she's the courageous southern white woman who will like, talks to a black man. 
That's that's it. That's, by the way, um, there was a question of what the political message of this year's Oscars is, and I think it's that like we're trying desperately to find ways to pay lip service to to respecting black people while actually not offering them any respect at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like hmm. oh, like we're going to take care of them, and like I read a really interesting um, op-ed recently about how like unpopular Precious is with black people and how they find it like patronizing and awful, and like white yeah. people love it because it makes them feel all uh, patriarchal and whatnot. Um, Someone needs to help these people. They need our help. What can we do? How much can I donate? A lot of tax deductible. Speaking of of African-Americans. We are the world. We are the children. Can I get a – if I buy a drink cozy, can you give a proportion of that money to Haiti? Because that would make me feel much better about the drink cozy. Yeah, exactly. If I buy a red Gap t-shirt, can I cure AIDS? Yeah. So this is getting a little bit out of order here, but <laughs> what are you talking about? We are on target like a laser beam. I was <laughs> no, 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 no. I was about speed two cruise control. Yeah, let's rock and roll. <laughs> no, I, I was actually jumping a little bit ahead to best director. We haven't talked about best actor yet um, because um, an African American is, I assume, American. Um, a black man, a black male, is nominated for best director, and much hay has been made over Catherine Bigelow, a female director, being nominated for this. Yeah. But um, I can't recall of an African-American uh, who has won a, uh, a Best Director Oscar. So this must be a, a particular moment that, uh, that a black male has been nominated for this. Yeah, but, gosh. Someone's IMD being someone's... Somebody, someone would someone stall for 10 or 15 yeah. minutes. Um, so I'm pretty sure Quentin Tarantino counts. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, except that he doesn't. <laughs> No, I was just stalling for Pete to Google. <laughs> okay, so there are... say something controversial. <laughs> so the first black person to be nominated for Best Director and the youngest person ever nominated for Best Director is John Singleton from Boys in the Hood. And I know that we have some people who are fans of overthinking it who are younger than I am. Uh, and if you haven't seen Boys in the Hood because you missed it because you were too young when it came out, see Boys in the Hood. Boys in the Hood is really, really good. Lee Daniels is the second black person to be nominated for Best Director. So John Singleton didn't win. Um, you know, that year, it was 1991. Um, so the winner was like Clint Eastwood, I think, for Unforgiven or something like that. Mm. I'm not actually looking that up. But, the, um, um, but, uh, but uh, Boys in the Hood is on Netflix streaming if you uh, – Oh, yeah. I think if you have it's also that. So, oh. it, it's, it's so much better than the other movies of its oeuvre. Like, it's so much better than Menace to Society. And, like, all, I mean, Higher Learning is pretty good, but, like, Boys in the Hood is really, really good. So I highly recommend it. Do the right thing is also really good. That's in the same category, but very yeah. Few other it's ones. Uh, do the right thing is up there with yeah. right. Yeah, um, right. And I was thinking. Of, of, hey, speaking of Netflix cues, uh, I want to say that um, uh, Sandra Bullock in Twenty Eight Days and Eddie Murphy in uh, Forty Eight Hours are right next to each other in my Netflix queue, and so I think those, <laughs> those movies probably have a lot in common with one another. <laughs> right, right there with Twenty Seven Dresses, you know, and and. Uh, yeah, and 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And the, and the, uh, the Catherine Hardwick film, 13. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you love that movie, don't you? I remember you talked about that movie for like a year and a half when it came out. Like, oh my god, it's like kids with chicks. It's great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wait, there were chicks and kids. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. This is true. No, I, like, I, I, I think kids is, is the better art by far because it was just so nihilistic. I actually – speaking of uh, – an education is on here, and I saw an education. It's a, it's a great performance from mm. – actually from both of them. 
uh, Carrie Mulligan and uh, what's his name, Starsgard. But I saw recently a, a, a British movie, a BBC Films movie. Uh, that is not going out in wide release called Fish Tank, which is essentially an education, but it's the, you know, the uh, teenage girl takes up with older men who she shouldn't take up with thing. But 40 years later, 50 years later, and uh, uh, much lower on the socioeconomic scale. And um, that movie... Uh, is totally unsentimental about kids. All the kids in it are are just dicks to one another. And I like I like films like that because I think kids are too often. Uh, I think kids are too often sort of like the kids in Mary Poppins. Kids in Mary Poppins like sort of buffed up are sort of um, you know spit shine for the for the movies. I, kids are are awful. They're dirty and they're mean and <laughs> well you know what i always say i'd say that if it weren't for adults human children would be the smartest and most dangerous uh sentient beings on the planet right uh they are they are deadlier than tigers uh and they are much more clever um which is why i hate it when you have like a movie like this is the the thing that actually finally drives the stake through the heart of the Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie for example because like the Punisher is fighting the mafia and all of a sudden there's this kid who gets kidnapped by the mafia and he like kicks the mobster in the shins and runs away and you're like this is nonsense like if this were this movie were actually as hardcore as it claims to be like one child would get shot and then another child would like pick up a stick and sharpen it until he so stabs the mobster in the eye what so by the standard uh, Scooby Doo once again becomes a, a hardcore and artistically respectable thing because those meddling kids are always uh, you know <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I always wanted to do? There were always two movies that I wanted to see. I wanted to see a hardcore, really, really dark Legend of Zelda movie. Because what the, Legend of, the Legend of Zelda follows a 13-year-old boy with a knife who like walks around the world murdering thousands and thousands of wild animals and people and monsters because of this vague suggestion that he needs to like find this girl. Right? So he's like following presumably his like misled libido and his like insatiable lust for violence. And he just like and he's like, oh, and octopus i'm killing it i'm taking its money like there's no reason to believe it has money it's like i'm gonna throw fire like oh there's wizards i'm gonna stab them in the face and it's like the whole movie is about this kid trying to find different ways to stab things a video game and it's so sad link is so lonely like in the original legend of zelda link is so so lonely which is i think why they give him the little fairy thing because once the video game technology gets to the point where you cannot real you cannot portray the world of the original legend of zelda any further without it being crushingly crushingly nihilistic like you have to like add in these little like like oh he has a horse like oh he has a friend you know like oh it's actually not acceptable for him to just be burning down all the trees in the forest looking for the one that has 50 bucks underneath it you know what i mean like apparently this isn't something that children would play for hours and years um and so the other one i really wanted to do was mega man um, yeah, because Mega Man and do that is a live action one, and I've talked to you about this because Me- Mega Man is a story of like consumer robots that are made to be cute and like friendly around the house, turn on humanity and exterminate it, and the only thing that's left in this sort of like place that's populated with these googly-eyed um, robot monsters is this imitation child who is created by, like, this scientist who's the counterpoint to this crazy mad scientist who destroyed the Earth. And this, like, like fake child, this, like, fake little boy is sent on this sort of, like, overly theatrical and, like, needlessly complex quest to kill the other robots, which in no way is going to bring humanity back from extinction. Uh, and I always thought that, like, Mega Man was, like, very... Also, he kills them with eggs. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, he's like, oh, he'll gain their power. And it's like these little victories. And Mega Man has all these small victories built into it, except Mega Man has no soul, right? Mega Man is not a sentient object. He's like a, a piece of metal and ceramics that's been put together. He's not a cyborg. He's like a computer whose purpose it is to destroy the blender that killed everybody you know. Um, and so, again, like, if we were to portray these things representatively, narratively in a way, I think it would be interesting. And actually, I think the way that kids respond to them when they play them as video games, they would be very different than the, uh, excuse me, princess, that you see in the cartoons that ran yeah. in the 80s. That's, so. that's interesting. You also have a you Mario know- Brothers movie where, like, a large plumber jumps on people's heads. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Definitely. I mean, they're not a whole people, bunch they're different- mushrooms. They're, you know, sentient mushrooms. I think that, that uh, got was it Ghosts and Goblins um, got it kind of right when they're like you get hit once and you're naked in front of the world you get hit again and you die and that's like that's that's what video games are all about the ones that make it too easy I don't really appreciate that so yeah you never you never <laughs> used the Konami code to to get thirty lives in Contra did you I did use it to refill my life in uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Fall of the Foot Clan but I. <laughs> I but I did not necessarily use it for Contra all that much. I would use it for Pete, I think you need to make that your email signature. Oh, what is you, you get hit once and you're naked before the world. You get hit again and you die. <laughs> <laughs> can, we, can, can I lead us down another rat hole here while we're talking about kids in movies? Please, please. Uh, we were recording... We were recording a special audio program, uh, which we are going to call The Overview. It's going to be a new series of, of occasional audio programs on Overthinking It, where we record an alternative commentary to a movie. Uh, and so today, uh, John Perich, Matthew Belinky, and I were recording an alternative audio commentary to the film Twilight, the first movie in the uh, in the series. And this movie has something. Uh, this movie has uh, something that actually you see in a lot of movies that, that feature kids, which I'm going to call the anti dare message, uh, which is the message that you should not tell an adult whatever you do. When something goes wrong. <laughs> because they don't know about the vampires. And they can't know about the vampires. And so you have to deal with everything yourself. Uh, because adults are not so much untrustworthy as just stupid and not with it. Right? So um, I, was, I was thinking about this. And this is like a uh, – this is sort of a, a, a common thread in um in a lot of movies that a, a lot of adventure movies especially that have uh uh kids in them i'm thinking now of like goonies uh you know you can't tell the grown-ups uh because you have to keep the vampire secret to yourself lost boys says uh christopher nyc in the chat room anyway yeah. okay end of the rattle well the Lo- lost boys is ironic but i won't get into why yeah um yeah, yeah, because yeah. because a lot of the times the message is like the parents don't get it, but there's somebody out there who gets it. But uh, anyway, anyway, uh, it's almost uh, always the I, kind of crazy old grandpa character too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like there's there's there are sometimes adults that get it, but it's the childlike adults that get it. Uh, the adults that still maintain the spirit. Like uh, you know what? Like um, what's his name? Toodles in Hook, sure. the one who lost his uh, yeah. marbles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a great example of like the elderly get it what children get which is a weird little arc there that happens a lot where it's like you know like like uh, in up you know like you know grandpa gets it um like you know we we don't see russell's mom all that much but you know the relationship that skips a generation that's the one that we really want to see 
Yeah. So. Yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. very often grandpa, right? It's very often like yeah. the one in second childishness. Yeah. But um, I'm thinking of the movies where the kids have a plot, you know, and the adults can't know <laughs> about it. Where the kids participate in a secret world, you know, uh, just just below the view of uh, of the grownups. Anyway, yeah, well, yes. like Spy, spy Kids, exemplified by Spy Kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, but the That's parents exactly are also saying. spies in Spy Kids. Yeah, they're not as good. Yeah, but 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 uh, Grandpa's great because he's played by Ricardo Montalban. Ricardo Montalban. And yeah, in Spy Kids 3D, he comes back. On. <laughs> uh, best actor in a leading role: Jeff Bridges, Crazy Heart; George Clooney, Up in the Air; Colin Firth, A Single Man; Morgan Freeman, Invictus; Jeremy Renner, The Hurt Locker. Uh, probably going to Bridges. Uh, anything to say about this? You don't think that an academy made up largely of LA liberals is going to vote for Morgan Freeman as Nelson Mandela? In a sports movie? No, Jeff. Well, Jeff Bridges, <laughs> Jeff Bridges got the Golden Globe. Jeff Bridges got the SAG Award. Uh, yeah, but that was voted on not by LA liberals. The Golden Globe? No, it was the Golden Globes are voted by members of the foreign press, many of whom are That's socialists. My point. Yeah, many of whom are yeah, like, no, but they, they, they've already done their celebrating of Morgan Freeman. This is Hollywood's first appreciation to oh, not Morgan Freeman, but but uh, Nelson Mandela. This is Hollywood's chance to show how awesome they think Nelson Mandela is. Huh. And I think they're funny. Interesting. Well, Jeff yeah. Bridges has uh, – he's been getting the campaign, and he's got, he's got a lot of the buzz. I mean it's being talked about as though it's a lock for him. So, okay. Interesting. Uh... I mean I'll say another thing about Up in the Air, which is that I, I, we've, we've had a lot of, diff- of uh, conversations about what to pin down about what matters for Oscar. But I think that every year there's a lot of movies that go by that are really good that just don't have that impact to get that Oscar stamp of approval. And those are sometimes the best movies to go back and watch in future years because they're real achievements and they don't get caught up in the reinterpretation of generations as much. And I feel like in five years, Up in the Air is going to stand up real well. Uh, and, and if you want to go back and see George Clooney do a really good performance, go back and watch Up in the Air. I don't think he's going to win this year, though. I just don't think it's, it's that remarkable um, a performance. Well, the idea... my, my... Yeah. Go ahead, Matt. <laughs> Uh, the the idea is this narrative of like it's his time, you know, is a really is is a really powerful one for the Academy, and I think for Jeff Bridges, like it's his time. Mm. I think that that's. I mean, the, uh, M- Morgan Freeman won the Oscar. Why? I mean, he, he missed for Lebowski, but like, why is it Jeff Bridges' time? Because he's he would, you know he's been a highly regarded actor for all these years and has not won uh, has lost out on the award has not won an Oscar in that time. All right. I mean, well, I mean if you'd said, yeah. said like because of the awesome new square beard, I would have been with you, but I don't really buy. <laughs> because of the awesome new square beard from. Oh uh, well, well, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Pete? Have you guys ever seen the fabulous Baker Boys? I no. really liked the fabulous the Bri- Baker the Bridges Boys. brothers, Jeff and Bo and Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. Where is Bo Bridges in all this? So The Fabulous Baker Boys is a movie about two uh, brothers who play a sort of stage show where they do play dueling grand pianos and are very sort of like smarmy, loungy uh, musicians. And it's really charming. And like, and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer is the woman who comes between them. But in all this buzz about Jeff Bridges, where's Bo Bridges? Like, what's he up to? Is he off with like Randy Quaid in rehab or something? Like, why why, why is Bo Bridges not out there like stumping for his brother? Uh, you know, is is uh, is something happened to him? He's making four movies that are are uh, five movies due out in 2010, um, including Free Willy: Escape from Pirates Cove. So maybe that. <laughs> oh, explains. that's where I saw. Really, he's that's hanging out with me. Stephen Baldwin. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now that's harsh. Wow. <laughs> William Baldwin, I would have thought, but Stephen, yeah. perhaps, I guess. Oh, uh, man. Well, uh, directing Avatar, uh, James Cameron, The Hurt Locker, Catherine Bigelow, Inglorious Bastards, Quentin Tarantino, Precious, uh, Lee Daniels, Up in the Air, Jason Reitman. I think mm. it's uh, uh, I think it's down to Cameron and Bigelow is the is the conventional wisdom I guess I don't know on the internets what in what I read on the internets. Mm. I'm not sure it's going to be Jason Reitman, though I think that movie is well directed. I, I think it's not showy, and that's why it's well directed. Maybe that's why it's it's not going to win anything because it wasn't. Uh, because it wasn't showy, you know, because it didn't really have, though I think it had a, a, a firm vision, a good uh, hand guiding it. Uh, it didn't have a director's name kind of written all over it the way, say, Quentin Tarantino kind of writes his name all over his movies. Though I am, I am thought, uh, I am, um, uh, it's called to mind Heath Ledger's comments after he lost the Oscar for... Uh, Brokeback Mountain and um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman won it for Capote that's, that year. Uh, Heath Ledger is reported to have said, I thought this award was for best acting, not most acting. Hmm. Oh, hoo <laughs> Sick burn. <laughs> See, um, I, made an Al Pacino, I made an Al Pacino joke. Hoo-ah. hoo um, if we made an award for most acting, I guess Christopher Lee would win all of them. Right? <laughs> Gene Hackman. I mean, or maybe it would be James Earl Jones for all his voiceover work. If, you, like if you were to give an award for most directing, you know, uh, Inglorious Bastards, uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino, and James Cameron would be, you know, locked neck and neck like Holmes and Moriarty falling together <laughs> into the falls. Which is ironic because James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow were the ones who were married to each other and got <laughs> divorced. So I guess this is this is a story of like James Cameron being locked in deadly combat with each of these individual ones, uh, each of these individual actors, and seeing which one is going to be able to defeat him, um, and in this sort of like Balrog Gandalf like plummet through Kazadum, um, so he's going to come back out on the other side and become like Gandalf the Gold and get that Oscar statuette. Because yeah. <laughs> um, you have to get through Jimmy first. Uh, I mean, I have a ton of respect for what James Cameron did. I mean, what he did with this movie was pretty considerable from a business perspective, from like a camera design perspective, from a technology and, and production design perspective. Um, again, it stretches the definition of what a director is, but a director has is still a fairly new role among all the roles in show business. It's only really been around for a few hundred years. It's changed a lot and it will continue to change, so I'm not particularly married to that. I'd say a hundred years, um, right? Like in show business, it's really the Russians, you know, around the time of Stanislavski well, I mean, that, I mean, that uh, yeah. uh, transformed the theater model from the actor-manager model to the director's auteur model. Yeah, I mean, you have to go back like three or four to find somebody who even had the anything close to the job title. But yeah, to actually have that role, that sort of semi-auteur quality role, it's definitely only a, a century or so. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Just, yeah. So, like, the, one of those things that people don't imagine was invented at some point that people think has been around forever. Like love, which people think has been part of human life forever, but was actually only really invented uh, about a thousand years ago. Um <laughs> Side note, uh, but yeah, um, I don't know. What do you think? More it, than that, you, surely. There's, really? there's Roman and Greek poetry I mean, like, that that makes that has something to do with love. I'm thinking of Catullus. I'm thinking of Sappho. Yeah, but that stuff is much more sexual. And like little, little thing called the Bible. Well, the Bible doesn't have much love in it. <laughs> I mean, some songs. Let me rephrase that. I'm talking about romantic love as distinct from like 
the love that people ought to have for each other based on like their fondness and their individual relationship. I mean, this idea that you're supposed to have a soulmate or like you're supposed to have like one person that you love more than all the other people in the world, and that this is something that exists and transcends your sexual attraction to them. Yeah, pop um, intellect, pop intellect. Seventeen in Jesus. the chat room says uh, the Song of Solomon, right? The Song of Songs. That though the Song of is Solomon is about sex, though. Yeah, it's very right? sexy. <laughs> I, uh, I guess I don't know. I don't know. I'm getting I'm getting torn off on a tangent here. It's about, true. Like, it's sort of- not. It's not like uh, Song of Solomon is not like. Uh, it's like you know her 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 body is a city that I take great pleasure in sacking nightly. You know, it's um in the sack, if you will. Uh, it's not. What is that if not love? <laughs> I guess so. It's not. Um, it's not like, oh, you complete me. You know, you're my soulmate. Oh, there's something ineffably beautiful about your personality that I, you know, that that draws me to you. Yeah, I mean, it's it, at what point at the end of the story do you start seeing people kiss? Because that's a fairly recent uh, development. Because like back in the Dizay, like back in the Dizay, like kissing was a fairly trivial matter and would not have amounted to like the climactic event in anything. Um, but at some point, and we become high, uh, more civilized and ascetic in our viewpoint towards our sexualities, kissing becomes this great big symbolic act. I mean, Judas kissed well, Jesus. Cultures, and no one was Culture's part of the advent of Christianity. I mean, they, some of them had it, but many of them lacked the sort of stigma around sexuality. So the kiss came to replace sex in narrative because you couldn't talk about sex, but you could show yeah. the chaste kiss, and it, it sort of like, and then you know, and then it sort of like the camera pans, and you know, it leaves you to the imagination. Yeah, or the ocean. Yeah. Ooh, best best pan to the ocean. That would be a good thing to bring back. My favorite pan to the ocean of all time has to be in Britney Spears' Crossroads when they pan to the ocean. Because, like, for Christ's sake, come on. Uh, but um, but yeah, we watched that together, right? All of us back in the day. I'm talking about a different time frame than ancient Greece here. I'm talking about like 2000 and 2002, maybe. That we watched the Britney Spears. It, it movie. sounds like no one wants to fess up to this. Nobody wants to fess up. Maybe I watched it with Ryan. Fair enough. <laughs> we may have been so drunk that we can't remember. <laughs> we did spend a lot of time in college like that. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. All right. So, okay. yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, Catherine Bigelow, I think she's winning, even though Quentin Tarantino did a very good job of making a Quentin Tarantino movie. So, <laughs> Which was his goal. Exactly. That's what he was setting out to do. Mission accomplished. I agree with Pete. I think she's probably the, the likely winner. Uh... All right, best picture. Let's do it because we're getting close to the end here. Uh, Avatar, The Blind Side, District 9, An Education, The Hurt Locker, Inglorious Bastards, Precious, A Serious Man, Up, and Up in the Air. Frankly, I'm hoping for either Up or Up in the Air just so that the presenter can, like, taunt whichever side <laughs> doesn't win. And the winner is <laughs> Up, Up. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be awesome. For as long as possible and see yeah. how long, right? The director uh, of the Oscar ceremony, like themselves, will have like a terrible time like figuring out who to cut to. It's going to be <laughs> great. Um, so when I I'd like to point out that Inglorious Bastards has a spelling mistake in it that's very much talked about, which is the E in the second word. But the first word also has a spelling mistake that isn't nearly as talked about, which is the first U. That's right. all I wanted to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> No, going can back to the ba- question can I brought you say up before, bastards on network television. Uh, Do you think the word sure. bastards? If, is it, be if it's spelled with an e, yeah. yeah Bastards. <laughs> They'll probably say bastards. Yeah. Right. So going back to the question I asked earlier, like, what does it mean to be best picture? 
Um, I thought about this, and what I came up with is uh, the movie that uh, offers the most transcendent experience. In other words, one that most affects me or mo- takes me, is best at taking me to a place which I often do not frequently go, um, <laughs> for lack of a, a better way to phrase that. And uh, the, the, that really narrows it down to just two for me, and that would be Avatar and Up. I mean, probably that definition I just constructed there very much uh, biases my uh, pick towards science fiction and fantasy type movies. No big surprise there, right? Um, but um, can you, let me ask you this: can you Think of a movie that's taking you to a different place, quite the way that Avatar has, I mean, for all its flaws, right? It's, what do you mean a different place? Like Final Fantasy X landscape? Like what are you talking about? To a different well, place, like, <laughs> like uh, Mark, I hear what you're saying. I was uh, for me. I'm like, not talking the- about Pandora. That's always a very literal thing, there, right? No, well, the the one that the one that comes to mind for me, and I think the best best picture ever is Braveheart. <laughs> I'm not kidding. The one they I'm got not kidding. For best picture of all time, best picture ever made. <laughs> no, 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 no. But but like the best of the best pictures, at least sort of in my lifetime, because like it it everyone who's seen it loves it. Let me put it this way: you buy into it wholeheartedly. You buy into it whole talk. You're you're there with him, even years later. When you know who Mel Gibson really is, you turn that movie on and you love it. I was in a bar this weekend and like it came on the TV and 25 people stopped talking and watched 15 minutes of it. It's that good still. And I think like and, and it's exactly what Mark's talking about. It's that's the it puts you there and you just get sucked right in. And some movies do that better than others. And, and I, I do think that's sort of the best quality that that you can look for as a rubric. I think we pretty much all need to acknowledge that Avatar is a level higher than the other movies that were made this year. And it really ought to be rewarded for this by being given the proper accolade of Best Picture. Because the Best Picture doesn't just go to the best movie. It goes to the best human beings who make the best movie. And, and it really, Avatar is the kind of thing where you can sense that they have greater souls. Like, they're more refined expressions of what it means to be human. They're just, they're, they're, they are... They're like an aristocracy. They're sort of like if they were to like if you were to take them away, like civilization would collapse is what I'm saying. And we need to make sure because I mean it's like it's like in Bioshock. Like you don't want the world to end up like Bioshock. So you should give James Cameron an Oscar. And that's really what it boils down to. Um no, I don't I don't like Avatar. I don't think it's very good. <laughs> I think that there are a lot of movies that succeed in transporting you to different places. I think a number of them are on this list. I think District Nine is one of them. Um I, I for all I know, the blind side is very good. I haven't seen it. Uh, I don't know. Um Let's go let's go ahead and judge it and say that it's not. It's not good. Yeah, none of us have seen it, but let's go. Just let's just make that decision. Now. Hey, my ex cried during the trailer in the theater for The Blind Side. <laughs> so then it gets Matt's Oscar for most misleading trailer. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yes, Bioshock is excellent, Alexander Bevier. I, I I I do agree. I do agree. So that's from the uh, the U stream. Um. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. What about uh, looking at these other things that were in here? I mean, Pete, you really liked Up, right? I mean, yeah, I liked Up a lot. I thought and, it was great. And I, I thank you for it before, but I thank you again for that article you wrote about comparing it to Paradise Lost and uncovering all sorts of different uh, levels of meaning to that, which um, which really enhanced it in my view. Yeah. So I, I, that's like I said before, like I, I would give Up serious consideration as well. Yeah. I'd like to see. I mean, I don't know. Bastards doesn't really deserve it. I mean, Bastards. Uh, what? Never mind. Continue. Oh, I was just saying that Bastards, 
has a number of really wonderful scenes, and I maintain that it has a really interesting sort of meta-historical point that it's trying to make about um, the way that we write history and the sort of role of the movies in, in sort of human recent human history. But there's parts of it that just don't really work for me to the extent it's kind of cobbled together. It doesn't really, like, ring the bell of quality to that sort of clarion hue, uh, clarion tone that you want to hear from your best picture. Um I didn't see a serious man. I mean, does anybody actually think that that movie is good? The only people I know who saw it were like, eh. So like, I don't know. Um, Up was really good. I liked Up. It's not as good as Wally, but like, what is you know? Like, I mean, I guess <laughs> it's a high bar. <laughs> I mean, like maybe that Free Willy movie that Bo Bridges is working on, but pretty much nothing else. Um, I mean, what are we saying? Are we saying the Hurt Locker is going to win? I haven't even seen that one. I feel bad when I haven't seen the Best Picture nominees, guys. Like, I got to say that. Like, I feel bad well, that I haven't seen these movies. What's your rate? How many of these did you see? I saw five out of ten of these. I've seen Avatar, District 9, uh, Inglorious Bastards, Up, and Up in the Air. So I've seen yeah, five as well. Those are the same that yeah. I saw as well, too. If only they had only five nominees, and if only were the only five that I'd seen. <laughs> that <you'd> seen. <laughs> the five but they had to make saw. ten. And that has done, you know what it is? It's a way of extracting money from people who do amateur commentary websites. Because now we have to go and shell out our own money to go see <laughs> I wasn't going to go see an education. I mean, that girl's pretty, but like, whatever. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> good, movie. good movie. Oh, good movie. That's a good one. So yeah, yeah, yeah. How, yeah, yeah. Good, does good performance to another world. Um, is it trans to another world? Like with, like with, like to other stuff, like dragons. Do people no, write no, dragons? No, it's it's workmanlike <laughs> filmmaking, but it's good. It's good acting. Okay. Uh, and decent Fair. writing. Um. Yeah, Inglorious Bastards. You know, I was watching Inglorious Bastards with my friend Juliet, who is a you know film studies grad of Columbia, and she was going on and on. It, it, oh, is Juliet, is Juliet, the one I watched Hulk with like yes. five years ago. Ah, yes. oh, that was awesome. My She's friend. still my Facebook friend after watching only that movie. Okay, <laughs> well, you know, uh, Ang Lee's Hulk can bring people together. You know. It is the best movie ever made about Hulk, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but she was going on and on about, you know, film theory and the representation of historical evil and how you can't make a you can't make a movie about uh about the Nazis because hey, you um But they uh, did uh, you know, because then, you know, you in the audience, you sort of experience catharsis and like everything's OK and that's not OK because the Holocaust is a terrible historical evil and things like this. And I, I what I said to her was that, like, I think that that is naive about the way that people make stories out of history and the role that stories play for us in our lives. And I think that that's one of the things that uh, Pete has said this before, that Inglorious Bastards is about, you know, that um mm. You know, you, you know, it's about the way in which uh, history becomes story and the reasons that we tell stories to each other about things. I mean, even the idea that the Holocaust is an evil to the extent that we can't make a movie about it is itself a narrativization and contextualization of a thing that happened to so many people on such a scope that it's incomprehensible to an individual human being. So you're just question begging. You're saying that my narrative says that your narrative can't exist, and right. it's a way of – of trying to assert authority critically over what other people are doing to make art. And my opinion of that is, don't tell me I can't make a movie. Make a movie that's better than the movie that I'm making and show me why I'm wrong. And yeah. then, of course, it's like, well, what about Birth of a Nation? It's like, okay, fine, maybe you shouldn't make that movie. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe this is not something you're going to apply. Look, 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 this is the thing. This is the problem with, with free speech, right? Like, John Milton in Areopagitica uh, gave an impassioned dis- defense of free speech for everyone except Catholics, 
right? And them we burn. We throw their books on the fire, right? And Stanley Fish, the uh, literary critic, has made the point, and Miltonist, uh, before he became an annoying academic gadfly who you want to punch in the face, he was a Miltonist. A pretty yes. respectable Miltonist, actually. His, his theory of temporal reading is actually quite insightful, and I and would I, recommend yeah, And if you read that Milton book, which is called Surprised by Sin, you yeah. uh, can't read Paradise Lost, the unsurpassed and unsurpassable greatest work of literature in any language ever. <laughs> <laughs> in the same way, again, because you, you actually you become, uh, you become attuned to the process of education that he posits is going on throughout all of Paradise Lost, and he's right about that. But anyway, uh, about Areopagitica, he said that every... That a culture is defined, right, by, by what they have to exclude, you know? Um, and for Milton, it was Catholics. Then we burn. We, you know, right, like we build a big bonfire in the middle of the town. We throw their books right on it. They don't get free speech, uh, the free speech that I'm arguing um, that I'm arguing for passionately in my degree, in my uh, uh, article, Areopagitica, right? But Matt, you say to me, what about, you know, secular humanism or what about multiculturalism or tolerance, right? Uh, that's a viewpoint that says we should embrace all viewpoints. Aha, I say. But what if I came to you and said this? In your tolerant society, I want freedom to practice my intolerance, can I do that? Mm. And you say, no, because this is a tolerant society. And I say, ha ha, uh, then we burn the entire, you know, the, the, (laughs) so it's, it's perfectly okay. And I think you don't need a consistent system of philosophical values to say, look, like birth of a nation is clearly over the line. Then we burn, you know, Mm. like, uh, but, um, but Especially because it was on nitrate film stock, which we learned about in Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which we learned in Inglorious Bastards is highly combustible. Um, yes. Or, you know, Triumph of the Will, whatever. Like, then we burn. Yeah. Like, okay. But, uh, but, you know, don't tell me, but don't tell me that my movie, which is clearly on this side of the line, is bad. Mm-mm-mm. Anyway. I mean, there's, there's also something to be said for the wonderful little feedback loop that happens when you produce art that people respond to. Because people have these value systems for um, that exist prior to their creation of art that tell them the art that they ought to create, and then that art goes out and competes in the sort of marketplace of ideas, and certain parts of it resonate with people and parts of it don't. And so there's this feedback from the audience saying, like, no, don't make that. Make this instead. No, don't make that. Make this instead. And I don't think that we have a really good um, understanding ourselves, I think, as semi-participatory critics, like social, socially active critics who do our own sort of amateur fun work, who like to be creative, um, of the, the interplay between uh, creating art that's from a, the ground up and then creating art that's from like the top down and the sort of the, the wheel that's spinning, uh, because it's more apparent now than it's ever been, I think, because of the operations of our um, software networks that connect the information and, you know, oh, the movie studio can go to Twitter and look at what people are, look, are talking about and put that empirically like into their movie, right? Um, does that make sense? Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm kind of losing steam on it a little bit. But, like, I don't think that... I'd love um, to come in and help you out, but I, I, don't, I don't quite follow. Okay, here's the, here's the deal. I'll, I'll rephrase, okay? Uh, a lot of this comes from... Uh, I'll, I'll step back to the course that I took in college uh, on the literature of the 1790s, where we talked about um, two different ways of approaching literature, law, poetry, most of human thought. And one of them is that things should proceed from principles, 
right? That you should develop a system that's either internally consistent right. or logical or has some sort of underpinning in what it means and why you do things. It doesn't really matter as much for the purpose of this discussion what it is, but like things have a reason to exist and you should do them for that reason. And this would say like people have equal rights, like we shouldn't have a government that's run by a king, like because it doesn't make sense, like things like that. Versus this idea that you know, there's human nature, there's the world out there that uh, has certain things that kind of work pragmatically or don't work pragmatically, and our ability to impress our principles on the, on the world is so greatly limited that we should have much more respect for the, the sort of that side of the equation. Right? We, should, we should have that more respect for the things that are actually extant in the world and the effect that they have on us and on what we do. Right. So we should be not. So we should not uh, have a revolution where we kill the king in the hopes of instituting a utopia, because the king didn't really emerge out of a concept of principle, and whatever comes after the king also isn't going to emerge from a concept of principle. Because we can look at how kings emerge and we can figure out why that actually happens. Right. Right. And we can look at human nature. So and this is sort of like the right hand. The, the latter would be like a right wing conservative view, and the former would be a left wing liberal view. Like oh, we should make the world better versus like oh, we should recognize. The world for what it is and not screw it up um and There's, i'm saying right movies like, are in, like in that in that what you're calling the left-wing liberal view which is that we you know we ought to uh proceed from a, a collection of internally consistent and defensible you know fundamental principles um uh, uh that that sort of partakes implicitly in the enlightenment idea of the perfectibility of of people like the idea that we right. can be any better than we are right. now uh yeah. may beg the question of whether we actually can be any better than when we are now Right. And I mean, and the, the, the example from this year that I keep bringing up and bringing up is this idea that somewhere along the line, people uh, got this notion that Vin Diesel wasn't a movie star anymore, that, that they had a concept of the way that movies work and the way that movies are made now. And I can't put a 40 year old Vin Diesel behind the wheel of a car and make a huge hit movie out of it anymore because that's not how movies work. There's, they're slicker now. They have to be better. They have to aspire to like a more complex kind of synthesis of targeting and all this other stuff. And so they make Fast and Furious just this like car movie. They throw it out there. Huge opening weekend does great. People really respond to it. And so I feel like that, and I wrote an article about this, um, but I still think it's something that sticks in my craw and it's sort of the movie lesson of the year is like, look at the ways in which the audience interacts with the movie as well as the way that the people who make the movie interact with the movie. Because this year had a bunch of examples of where that happened in really interesting ways. Um, uh, and I mean, I, I kind of forget like why we started talking about, oh, cause we're talking about film theory and like why you're allowed to make certain movies because you take upon yourself a certain stewardship of human expression as a member of this sort of trained pseudo academic elite that's creating these pieces of art. Um, and, and my, what I would say is that the people who get to be the authority are the people who make the pieces of art that actually resonate with people. And that is a product of luck and a product of connecting with your audience. Uh, and not a product of having the best courses or learning the best things because it's not always something that you can learn because it doesn't always proceed from first principles. There sure. you go. That's what I mean. Does that make more sense? Yes. So, and like, you can't – you have to be careful about – so don't tell me I can't make Inglorious Bastards because if I make it and people like it and they watch it or if it means something to people, regardless of whether you thought it was a, a good thing in the first place, then, like, maybe we should have made it and maybe we should have put it out there and it looks like it turned out okay. So let's uh, stop hating the player and, and, and hating the game and start, like, making some, making some magic happen. If you want to make sense. some magic happen, you know how you can? 
You can write in at podcast at overthinking.com <laughs> or call the voicemail at 20 eat log zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. It was suggested it was suggested to me that saying eat log was uh was unfortunate, was not uh was not the most welcoming thing to say, I guess, or was offensive to some people. And to those people I say, eat log! Well, no, I, I don't know. Is it offensive? Let us know in the chat room or write us hate mail in the comments. We're always glad to get your hate mail. Uh, your Oscar picks, your ideas about the meaning of meaning as we've been talking about it. Uh, then we burn. Who do you burn? Um, what, what movie have you always wanted to make? Any question that's come up from the podcast, write in at podcastedoverthinking.com or call 203-285-6401. You can also use the show notes uh, on the – you can also use the comments on the show notes or use the contact form on Overthinking It. We are nothing if not eminently reachable by you over the internet. So it remains to me to thank Pete, Mark, and Josh, and thank you everyone in the Ustream chat room who has made this actually a really lively uh really lively discussion we've tried to incorporate your comments into the show as much as we can and if you want to be here next week to see us tape the show live and to see my ugly mug on the webcam uh it's uh, ustream.tv and search for overthinking it once you're there and you'll see us do the show live sunday nights at uh, 9.15 Eastern, 6.15 Pacific, and you can add your own little smart-alecky comments. Uh, I want to call out, I want to call out uh, Alexander Bevier on the, in the chat room, who reminded me uh, of what the title to this episode should be. So you could say he picked the title. He picked it out of, uh, picked it out of listening to us for an hour and a half. Uh, so until next Sunday, when we hope to see you there, or uh, download it, we hope you'll come every day to visit us on the web. Where, you say? Why, at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably doesn't deserve. Stab the wizard in the face. We need to go back into Italian and see how many of the uh, the titles can be attributed to Fenzel. Because it's probably a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Boom goes the dynamite. <laughs>